good morning, Gateway. Well, for those who don't know me, my name is Dean Salami. I'm just one of the many folks here serving at Gateway. And uh, like what's already been mentioned, today is the first week of our Advent series. You know, typically we take our time to, as you've heard when, we, when the, the scripture was read, we take our time to go to the New Testament. We look at those passages that speak about Jesus' coming. We sometimes look at the Old Testament as well, too, and we look at uh, how the prophets before had spoken about Jesus. Well, this week is going to be, I mean, this year is going to be a little different, okay? Um, what we're going to do is go back to the beginning. We're going to really build the case or really remind us of why Jesus came. And so I don't presume to teach you anything new. But what I would like for us to do is be reminded of what's going on. And with what's going on around us today, it's a real good reminder. It's a good reason for us to be reminded about what, how it all started. And we're going to build the case to see how, why. Why Jesus is so important. So, with all of that by introduction, I want you to take this time, this day specifically, and think of the old corn, uh, the Kellogg's Corn Flakes commercial. We're going to taste these biblical truths again for the first time. Now, with all that by introduction, would you mind joining me in prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, when we look a lot, look. Lord God, what is going on around us, we remi we're reminded, Lord, we're truly reminded of how desperate our situation is. Advent reminds us, Lord God, of this great hope because a Savior was born. But we sometimes have to remind, be reminded that that news is only as good as how desperate our situation truly is. And so we're going to look into your word, Lord God, and be reminded of that. And Father, you know that your word goes through people. And for whatever reason, you have so decreed this. And I recognize how flawed and uh, how inept I can be. But I know your word is greater than me still. So Lord God, I ask that you would empower this, your servant, that I might speak effectively so that I might glorify your great name and bless your people. Hear my prayer. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, my children, I've got two children, and one of the things that I used to love doing is taking moments of time in their lives and teach them. You know, when children are growing, they don't know where to go and what to do, and our job is to guide them. And one of the great things that I, I loved doing was teaching my children how to drive. Now, if I fall, don't laugh. It's going to happen, okay? Just, I just want you to know. So one of the things that I loved doing was making sure that my children knew how to drive. I looked forward to that. The one caveat was that they had to learn how to drive a manual transmission. And you know how fun that could be. Well, Amanda, my oldest, she took her sweet time trying to learn how to drive. But Allie, she was all about it. I, we, we really pumped up this time for her to get ready and look forward to driving. She took her exam, passed it, no problem. But she took her, her exam right at the end of school, and so she had to go to Jamaica to go visit her grandmother for three weeks. And when she came back, I picked her up from the airport, and the very first thing she was saying, Dad, so I got a lot of questions. 
So how am I going to do this, that, or the other? When you teach me, am I going to? And she was going on and on about all these questions. That's the way, hold up, slow down. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you to be a driver. And what do drivers do? So they drive cars. Exactly. And for that moment, she was satisfied. But you know, the real test comes on the road. And as she learned how to do the manual transmission and be in traffic every so often, she would get nervous. And what I would do is have her pull over, and then we would walk through what her concerns were. And then when we were done, I would ask her two questions. What are you? Her reply, I'm a driver. And what are you about to do? I'm about to drive this car. And then off we go. You know, the reason I ask that is because of what's going on with us today. What do humans do when they get all bothered and flustered? Do we have someone that can remind us of who we are and then we get back at it? So when Allie got nervous, all I had to do was remind her, you're a driver, and then she went back to the business of driving. But that's not really how things work today, is it? With everything that's going on around us, the war between Russia and the Ukraine, the war between Israel and Hamas, and I just heard there are new skirmishes popping up all over the place. On the border of China, there's a new conflict that's rising between China and Myanmar. Here, right after the war in Israel broke out with Hamas, I heard of a school in New York where people were calling for the rape and beheading of female Jewish students. How did we get here? In Arizona, a young man was standing on the sidewalk, sharing the gospel, and someone came up to him and shot him in the head. Witnesses say he wasn't nasty, divisive, or mean. He was simply inviting people to his church. Now, how did we get here? Oh, by the way, Merry Christmas. Let me have you take a look at a couple of statistics. That first slide, please. That the United Nations has warned that peace is under greater threat now than it has been since World War II. Next. Conflicts. Armed conflicts today drive 80% of all humanitarian needs. Next. In 2016, cost of conflict globally stood at an astonishing $14 trillion. And by that estimate, they say that that's enough to stop or end world hunger 42 times over. The Global Conflict Tracker, which is something that the Council on Foreign Relations has come up with, it estimates that there are at least 32 ongoing armed Conflicts. You're going to love this one. Two billion, two billion people currently live in conflict-afflicted areas. And that's about a quarter of the entire globe. Last one. Is that the last one? Okay. So when we look at these statistics, what does this tell us? Do we have anybody that would help us through this? 
Are conflict and violence part and parcel of what being human is all about? Well, unfortunately, the answer to that question, generally speaking, is yes. That's not how it's always supposed to be. That's not what it, meant, it was meant to be. And this is why we, we remember Advent. Because the hope that we have in Jesus overcomes even this scenario. So, well, the issue of conflict, again, is not new. And while it is certainly worse now, again, it's not new. And so turn with me, if you will. We're going to look at Genesis 4.26. And as is my habit, I'm going to jump around the Bible, okay? So prepare yourself. But let me read that first verse for you. It says, Seth also had a son, and he named him, he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, I would like to focus on that part right there. It says, around the life of this person, Enosh, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Well, the question, of course, is what happened? What happened for these people to start calling on the name of the Lord at that time? Well, let me keep this text in context. So back up a verse that says, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying... God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. And then we get our verse, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, I know that most of you, if not all of you, are very familiar with this passage. We are, all, we are very early in humanity's history, and when, when we go, and we went from a perfect environment in the Garden of Eden, communing with God, to the first recorded death, and all of this happens, in just one chapter. Well, let me give you a quick overview, and I'm, when I say quick, I mean very quick, about what happened leading up to chapter 4. And there's four things that have come, become very obvious to, to us. We're going to see a problem, a pattern, a progression, but then there's also purpose. A problem, a pattern, a progression, and then also purpose. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation week. And no matter what your view of that week is, whether it's a literal six days or not, the one thing we can all agree on is that this God, this creator God, is immensely powerful. All he need do is speak and things happen. And what we see in that first week is that he creates this atmosphere on earth where life can flourish. At the tail end of that chapter, what we see is that he has made man, us, in his image, and he wants to turn over rule of this planet to us. Now, we go to chapter 2, and what we see is that God took the time to make man from the dirt and breathe life into him. And, you know, there's, a, there's an incredible intimacy there because what God was able to do is just speak things into existence, and he could have simply spoke us into existence. He could have animated at a word, but what he does instead is he breathes life into us. There's this level of intimacy that he brings. And there's this level of intimacy that's connected to the earth where we're supposed to rule. You don't normally hear it in English. You know that God formed us from the dirt or from the earth, but in Hebrew, you hear the connection a little bit better. Of man, it says, Adam, Adam, and of the earth is Adama. So Adam was taken from the Adama. 
when we get to when the wife was made, the woman, you'll hear the same kind of connection. The different word for man is ish. But the word for woman is isha. And you hear that connection, don't you? That's going to be very important for us when we come back down to it. And I'll get there shortly. Now, the critical part of chapter 2 is when God places man in the Garden of Eden and he gives him the freedom to enjoy everything in the entire garden except one tree. Don't eat from this tree because if you do, it will bring death. And what we learn from this is that man um, is not truly free when he does whatever he wants. Because if you do whatever you want, that's not freedom, that's lawlessness. There's also another issue. Man is alone, and so God makes him a partner, and they live happily ever after, right? Well, we know that's not true, because if we were, none of us would be running around here with clothes, right? Then comes that faithful chapter. A new character comes on the scene, and it introduces doubt into the equation. Did God really say? He convinces Eve that the tree won't bring death. Instead, it will make her wise. And despite the clear warning from God, she takes her fruit, gives it to her husband, and eats. And they immediately, immediately know something is wrong. Now, did you guys ever see The Lord of the Rings? Now, come on. You haven't? It's 20 years old. Anyway, look. So there's a part in the first movie where the ring is found, and they bring it to um, Rivendell. You guys remember that secret council meeting? Now, Boromir, who's a steward of Gondor, he's there, and once he sees the ring, he thinks that that's a gift. Despite the fact that Gandalf says that the ring was evil, and Aragorn says to him, you can't use it that way. None of us can. That ring answers to one master and one alone. And then, I mean, uh, Boromir answers with the, the most um, arrogant response. What does a ranger know of such matters? Aragon's friend pops up and says, this is no mere ranger. This is Aragon, center of Arathon. You owe him your allegiance. Incredulously, Boromir says, this, this is Aragon? This is Isildur's heir, an heir to the throne of Gondor. And with a sneer, Boromir says, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. You see the problem? Boromir thinks he knows what's going down. Despite what people are telling him, Aragon of all people knows the danger of the ring and knows the seriousness of the consequence, but not Boromir, and he's us. He's Adam and Eve. Despite the fact that God told them this is not going to work, if you take from this tree, it will kill you, it will bring death, they say no. Instead, they try to become the center of their existence, deciding for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And they don't realize, like Boromir, that they're ill-equipped to handle that responsibility. They were created to bear God's image, not to be God. And the key ingredient here in this endeavor of being bearers of God's image is obedience. And when they disobeyed, it changed everything. God curses the snake, 
and the ground, but he doesn't curse Adam and Eve. Instead, their relationship will be marked with dissonance. They will be at odds with each other. The earth will not yield its produce to them very easily, and they are doomed to die. Now, it is in this new environment the next generation of humans enter. So let's begin at the beginning of uh, Genesis 4. And it says this, And Adam knew, uh, made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. You must rule over it. Despite their sin in the previous chapter, it seems that Adam and Eve has taught their sons about God and what it means to sacrifice to him. Abel brought the best of his flock to sacrifice. So that is what it means when it's, the text says that he brought the firstborn and the fat portions of it. That was the best of his crop. And it would seem that Cain brought fruit to sacrifice, but it wasn't, it wasn't the best. In his mind, he just grabbed any old thing and decided, hey, God should be okay with this. And God let him know that he wasn't happy with that sacrifice. And notice what we will begin to see. There's a pattern that's going to develop, a pattern of behavior. As he did with Cain's parents, God provides Cain with valuable instruction while he is upset. What am I going to do with this anger? What am I going to do with this depression? Well, God is going to guide him through the process. He lets him know that what he does, um, what he did was not right, but he doesn't have to feel upset. He lets him know that, he, um, that God literally is, what he's doing is laying out a path for Cain to find acceptance with him. All he has to do is do the right thing. And he knows the right thing to do. He has a choice. But just, just bring the good to God and his best and all will be good. If you choose not to do the right thing, you're going to be in danger. You're going to be in serious danger. Well, we go back to the New Testament, both the apostle Paul and James actually speaks to this scenario. James says this, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. That so captures Cain. He's at a critical scenario right here. God is warning, hey, listen, buddy, if you make the wrong choice, it's not going to end well. The Apostle Paul says this, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to that one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
Cain is in a precarious situation. He is angry and depressed that God did not accept his offering. What we will see is that he will be enticed to act on his feelings. God is offering him a different path. God warns Cain that sin is waiting to enslave him, but he has a choice in the matter. If he makes the right choice, he will know how to master sin. We know he doesn't take God up on that offer. And the pattern with us as human beings is this. We disobey, we disregard. We disobey, and we disregard. When James and Paul recognize, uh, what James and Paul recognize is that when you give in to sin, it becomes your master, and then you become powerless to extricate yourself from it. And it forces you down the path that leads to unrighteousness and death. Why Advent? Well, it's because we, we need to remind ourselves that we are trapped and we are unable to do anything about our situation. We need someone to save us. But let's continue on because in Genesis 4, 8 to 16, we read this. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops to you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one would, who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Unfortunately, Cain does not listen. Just as James said, Cain gives in to his temptation and sins by killing his brother. God shows up, and like he did with Cain's parents, he asks questions. Now, if we remember, anytime that God asks questions, he's never looking for an answer. The questions are designed to show how we are oriented, how we orient to him and how we orient to the situation that we find ourselves. And what we find with Cain is disturbing. When God asks him where is his brother, Cain replies by saying, I don't know. In addition, he gets smart with God. And notice, if you will, the progression of sin. Adam and Eve both disobeyed and disgraced, I mean, disregarded God. Cain disregards God's counsel, murders his brother, lies about it, and then cops an attitude with God. In addition to this, the really disturbing part, Cain does not seem to show any remorse for killing his brother. Instead, he complains that the punishment he's getting is too much for him to bear. If this is not an accurate picture of what humanity is today, I don't know what is. Those statistics that I showed earlier, it shows we're going down this, we are in this same path. All the elements seem to be there. What God designed and planned is now broken. The intimacy that we were supposed to have with God, gone. The intimacy that we are supposed to have with one another, man and wife, gone. The intimacy between brothers, 
you spiral down to fratricide. Now, instead of talking, we look to kill each other. So broken, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so when we look at this situation, exactly the exact, this is exactly the indictment that Paul brings upon the whole race in Romans 1. And I recommend that reading to you, but you can begin from verse 18 through uh, the end of the chapter. But I want to just look at verse 21 because it's telling. It says, for although, this is not on the screen, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him, or God, uh, um, glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Looking at what Cain did, his thinking did indeed become futile and his heart was so dark as to murder his brother. And so our, our, our hearts are the same. Take a look at God's response. He brings down punishment upon God, I mean, upon Cain for what he did. His punishment is threefold. God actually curses Cain. He didn't curse Adam and Eve, but he curses Cain. In verse 3 of chapter 4, we saw that Cain worked the soil, but part of his curse was that the soil will no longer yield its produce to him. In addition, he's going to be a restless wanderer. And you cannot fail to see the progression and the severity of judgment coming from God either. It's too much, Cain complained. That his, it's too much. His, his punishment is too much. He develops a, a little anxiety because he fears that people will try and kill him for what he's done. And unbelievably, unbelievably, God responds by saying he will not only protect Cain, but would exact vengeance sevenfold on anyone who tries to kill him. Why this kindness to a hardened, flippant murderer? Let's take a look at a couple of verses. In Exodus 34, 6 to 7, it says, And he, meaning God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I like the way Paul says it in Romans 2. He says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And it's funny the way that Paul uses that because that word lead, it has this idea of dragging, but not really dragging, more like forging, crush, creating a path that leads to repentance. Despite what we as humans do, God remains faithful to his own purpose. He created the, world, the earth so that life could flourish on it. And this is what the Exodus, um, the Exodus and Romans passages help us to see. Like Cain, the children of Israel found themselves victims of their own sin. And despite that fact, God is the one who, and despite the fact that God was the one who freed them from Egypt, they created a golden calf and began to worship it instead of God. Thankfully, God is compassionate and gracious. He is patient, and his desire is to forgive. But as Cain found out, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I really love the way Paul makes that point. Again, he talks to Cain, and as God is talking to Cain, God, God is kind so that he can scratch out this path for Cain to walk, to get back to repentance. God literally paves his path, and he refuses, Cain refuses the offer the first time. And then he goes and murders his brother 
even though God punishes him, he promises to protect Cain from anyone who would seek vengeance. The question is, does it make any difference for Cain's life? And in the next, the next section of this text, we'll see. So Genesis 14, uh, 4, 17 to 24 says, Cain made love to his wife. Cain did. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then, building, uh, was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujiel. Mahujiel was the father of Methushiel. I dare you to say that twice in a row. Lamech married two women. I'm sorry, Methuselah was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 70 times, 77 times. Now, you know, when you have genealogies in the Bible, sometimes they convey more than just the family tree. They show you something very interesting. Cain and his line if you look at this, they appear to flourish. Cain builds a city. His descendants were the ones who brought music and industry to the world. And today, we still all enjoy that. But I'm reminded of a message that Pastor Ed had spoken to us back when we were doing our Exodus series. I don't know if you remember it. It stuck in my brain when he said it. He says, if I am not transformed by God, I will transmit all of my stuff to you. And that's what we see right here. Because Cain was not transformed, he transmitted his anger, his sin, to his son. Do you see what his son did? The pattern is there. The problem still exists, and the progression of sin gets worse. Like his ancestor Cain, Lamech has total disregard for human life. He will kill as he sees fit. But did you notice? He married two wives. God's standard was that one man to one wife, and now we see it all breaking down. What God had planned for humanity is being summarily dismissed. And humanity looks to forge its own path. Cain's legacy lives on. And now we're back to where we started. We're back to verses 25 and 26. Could the reason man began to, or men at this time, began to call on the name of the Lord, could it be because of all of what we just covered, that entire context? Cain and his legacy is built into the human fabric. In reality, this is Adam and Eve's legacy. Cain simply showed how bad it was. But in either case, trying to live without God does not work. We are desperately in need of him. And so before we close, I want you to just take a look at Genesis 5, another genealogy. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I just want you to take a look at just a few of these verses. It says in Genesis 5, 1 through 11, this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind then when, they, then when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. 
After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and other sons uh, and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years. And you see that on the line? And then he died. We'll read the same thing over and over again, all the way through chapter, I mean, verse 31 of this, and what we'll hear is the same refrain. And then he died. And then he died. We see that the blessing of God to be fruitful and multiply was not retracted. But what sits alongside of it is death. So what do we do? We're trapped. We can't escape death. So why Advent? It's because the problem persists. The patterns haven't changed. And the progression of sin, our sin, again threatens not just peace, but life itself. But the beauty is that God's purpose is not thwarted. Advent is one of many ways we rehearse the reality of our desperate condition and also reminds us that the only hope is in God. And praise his holy name, God has made Jesus Christ the focal point of that hope. Everything will be tied to him. And then next week, next week, what we'll do is talk about why or remind ourselves what Jesus brings to the table address our problem. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Let's pray. Father God, we are reminded again of our desperate situation. We see from your word that the scenario that caused men to call, uh, to call on your name still exists today. We threaten our own existence because of our sin and our failure. But we're grateful to you, Lord God, because you have made it such that your purposes cannot be thwarted by our sin. The news is only good when a situation is that bad, and it is that bad, and is getting worse. So, Father, we are reminded again that Jesus is the answer, and so when we look to him, Father, show us clearly once again what it is and allow us the opportunity, give us the hearts to hold fast to that truth and anchor our souls in it while we patiently wait for his return. Hear our prayer, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.